You're listening to Riverview Church Conversations, a podcast for the spiritually curious. Well, hello, welcome back to the Conversations podcast. So good to have you with us today. Hello, Reese. how are you? Hello, Ryan. I'm doing just fine. Thank you. How That's are you? Good to be, look, we're, we're on a fortnightly rhythm at the moment. Oh, it's very, so I've, it's, I've missed, very, it's a leisurely pace. It is. I've missed being in the chat room with you. Yes. That's uh, a good one. Yes, it is. Uh, Reese, curly one to kick us off. Oh, no. Who was your first ever celebrity crush? Oh, good grief. Wow. Don't pretend um, you don't know. No, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that Just wasn't who, one. Who to pick? Uh, great question. I think probably April O'Neil from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, cartoon. Oh yeah, cartoon I, lady. I I would have to say Jasmine off Aladdin. Oh wow, two cartoons. Yeah. Wow, that's. Although I do remember being about six or seven and my mother taking me to the mall one day. I was like, what are we doing at the mall on a Saturday in the middle of the day? This is odd. We don't do these type of things. There I am standing alongside a catwalk. Wow. And then who strides down the catwalk? Al McPherson. There you go. I was like, wow, this is novel. There you I go. I don't know what to do with that. Appreciate yeah. you. I appreciate your honesty here. That's on a little the anecdote of a little six-year-old me. <laughs> Listeners, uh, think about that next time you uh, you um, ponder that question. That's true. Well, we are um, thrilled to dive into another amazing conversation. Now, Reese, what, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of faith crisis? Oh, of the many that I've had? Yeah. I You're still of, here today. I still am. I still Come am on. here. I, I count myself lucky, but, you know, myriad, myriad of different faith crises over the years. But I picture myself as a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old and... 32-year-old and all of those things, kind of mini pockets of mid-faith crisis along the way. Mm. I, I, probably, I'm, I think I just live one big faith crisis to the next. Yeah, I think I, yeah. I, um, the conversation we're going to share with you today is probably, I reckon it's my favorite conversation we've had. Mm. And so I'm really excited to, to share that with um, everybody. But I, yeah, it made me think, I feel like I'm in constant movement. I don't know, faith crisis. Maybe we just don't know it. It's yeah. hard to know sometimes. Yeah, I feel like the idea of faith crisis is often around the the nice little box we have and when things go outside the box. But I feel like my box is it's not a square anymore. It's, it's probably more like a pliable Yeah, it's like rubber. It seems to move around every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when you get to I suppose you and I are kind of, you know, we've got some years under our belts as professed Christians, but um I certainly don't think the same things that I think now. I didn't think them 10 years ago mm. or even five years mm. ago. Like my faith seems to be kind of relatively malleable. Mm. I'm not sure whether that's a comfortable thing that some some people like to have a very resolute faith. I find yeah, that yeah. my faith is not particularly resolute in some ways. I think mm. I mm. I have learnt that it's probably better to be a little more pliable mm. in some respects than risk having my faith shattered and on one corner or I getting mm, a dent on mm. the corner because I've held to this belief that can actually be yeah, yeah. demolished. You know? and, and you can't you can't deal with it all at once, right? Like it's a, it's an no. ongoing process and an ongoing journey. Um, in fact, last night we um, had our connect group actually, which is mm. awesome. And one of the conversations we had was, you know, what are the things that you're currently wrestling with? We were just talking about the mysteries of God and, mm. and how many questions we have as we go. And man, it was so encouraging to be in a room of other people, similar age to myself, mm. all of which have our own questions that we're working through. And 
yet none of us, it's it's not a big deal. Like it's, you know, it's actually a reality it's, that we all are figuring stuff out. It's, it's a nice place to be in to have a little community where you can discuss those and it not be a big deal mm. because not everyone has that. Mm. Some people can have questions about the Bible or about church or about, um, I don't know, pick any topic, divine intervention. Mm. Does, does Jonah get swallowed by the big fish Mm-mm. or not? Is hell a real place? Mm. You know, what's, what's happening with the afterlife? All that type of stuff. And it can completely upend their world. Mm. Mm. And I think that's part of part of the reason we, we started this podcast even. And we've mentioned that before. And that's probably why I enjoyed today's conversation so much because it's probably really close to home as to why we actually started this podcast is really to provide a space for us to um, spur one another on towards Christ but through asking big questions. And I know Tim has often said that um, in order for us to discover something, we actually need to ask questions first. And so, um, yeah, so much of today's episode is around that that kind of idea. Yeah, so our guest today is a – he might be new to some of you. His name might be a little bit familiar. Mm. His name is Dr. Michael Frost, but maybe not the Michael Frost you're thinking of. He is the New Zealand Dr. Michael Frost, mm. not the – Australian. Fellow countryman. Yes, yes. A friend of mine. He's not the Australian Michael Frost. He's a different different person. Um, and Michael is uh, many things. He's a theologian. He's a, he's a scientist. He has a PhD in theology. He is a podcast host. He hosts a podcast called In the Shift, which tagline is when life and faith go off script. And so we thought he would be the perfect person to talk about faith crisis or just when life and faith do go off script it's gonna be good well michael frost thank you for joining us today on the podcast it's good to have you joining us via zoom yes wonderful to be with you thank you now we go quite a ways back don't we maybe 15, 16 years ago, we probably first came across each other in the bowels of a <laughs> characterless venue at some Pentecostal conference. I, I feel like we may have been doing some music together. That's probably true. Yeah. Yes. You were probably playing the bass. And you were probably playing the keyboard. Michael is, uh, aside from being an eminently normal person and a very learned person as well, he's also quite the good uh, keyboard player. There you go. Can I just break the ice by asking, what were your first impressions of one another? Oh. <laughs> honest, honest impressions? Well, that's, <laughs> well, that's a great... Actually, my, my first real impression of, of Reese, because I had, I had met him in a couple of those spaces, but we had not, uh, we'd not you know, gone out for drinks afterwards and, and had a cuddle. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I don't think I got to know Reese well at that time. Um, but I, but my first real striking thing was I think him singing karaoke at a, uh, at a friend's party I was at. Uh, and then I saw him really let loose and I thought, that guy looks like fun. <laughs> I was probably singing some awful power ballad by Chicago or something like that or wet, wet, wet. <laughs> anyway, that's by the by. Yeah. So I suppose the location of our meeting in a Pentecostal conference hints at something, you, by your own admission, had been ensconced in Pentecostalism and all that comes along with that growing up as a PK and fast forward to now, you're probably in a very different place than one might expect of someone who is steeped in all of that. How do we get from being steeped in modern Pentecostalism to 15 years later, a podcast host, a theologian, and probably in a different place that some people might not expect? Can you talk us through that journey a little bit? Sure. 
Yeah, so I um I had grown up in in kind of small Pentecostal churches in in, in small towns where my where my parents were pastoring, and um and then moved to the big city to go to university, and uh, and went along to a a uh, a church that was you know much much larger and more exciting, and I was kind of caught up into this thing that was um, highly you know enthusiastic and energizing, and as an eighteen year old that was. Um, sort of everything I'd ever dreamed of in many respects, you know, coming from a, a small church of 40 or 50 people with a youth group of two um, <laughs> uh, to, to, this, to this large thing that sort of we, I would have spent nights praying about as a, as a young man that one day I'd be involved in such a thing. So there's this, this huge level of energy and enthusiasm that I was caught up into in that season of my life. Um, and, and in many senses, it took all of the things I already kind of believed and thought and then turned them up to 11, you know. So that was exciting and um, it was my world and my life in many respects. But as I aged, uh, as I especially hit kind of late 20s, I suppose, mid, mid to late 20s, um, I started bumping into some questions of my own uh, and generally what, what I did with those was they would come up and trouble me for a little bit and then I would um, I would try and push them down as far as possible so that they wouldn't bother me again. And, um, and that worked sometimes. And, uh, and yet I knew they were kind of ticking along in the background somewhere. And then alongside that, especially as, as I got a bit older, seeing the ways in which some aspects of the kind of construct of faith that I had and that those around me had, didn't help uh, always people navigate the complexities of their real lives. And so when people would hit um, crisis or, or tragedy or suffering or disruption or, or something like that, um, for a number of those people who were my friends, they didn't necessarily find the resources within their faith to actually help them navigate through that. Some of them found their faith made things more difficult because the kind of faith questions that came up for them complicated the, the, the stuff they were already going through. Um, so I was kind of watching that unfold. And, and I guess I, the, the reason that was unhelpful, that their faith may not have been as helpful as it could have been was, was that in many respects there was kind of one way to respond often in, in those situations. So if you encountered kind of a, a roadblock or a, or a crisis or tragedy, the appropriate response was this kind of, you know, and the, sort of the heroes who were held up were those who pressed in even further and just carried on believing and, and weren't they amazing? But for those who, for whom that wasn't either possible for them or they just couldn't find themselves in that particular place, um, things became quite difficult. Even their place of belonging became difficult. Their, their sense of being able to find resources within their faith that would be helpful to them became difficult. So that was kind of happening from one angle. And then from the other angle, I'd started studying some theology as well. I'd originally studied science when I left home and, um, and then uh, picked up a master's in theology. Just picked it up and along just the way. <laughs> What's that, sorry? You just picked it up along the way. Oh, I just picked it up, yeah. Just casually. Just, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, it was a, that was a shock to the system in many respects. I remember sitting in some of those early classes and just, you know, hearing someone speak about a particular passage that I, maybe I'd heard about, you know, 475 sermons on in my life. And you know, I'd never heard anyone talk about the context or the how how to actually interpret or, or read what was going on there. 
Um, and even just realizing, I think, when I entered into study that um, the Christian faith itself is much more broad than I had experienced. And so everything that I thought was just what Christians believed was in fact what a very narrow slice of Christianity that I had been immersed in believed. And so that that opening up and broadness, um, I guess, allowed me to room to begin exploring um, and 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 tackling some of those bigger questions that perhaps the the narrow slice that I'd found myself in just wasn't able to deal with very well. So um, so it's that journey, I suppose, that then led me to to pull things apart, put them back together again, and then pull them apart again, and then and that's kind of an ongoing process of life and faith. I think is the ability to be able to, um, or is at least the the willingness to be able to challenge the things that you hold and believe, and that those around you hold and believe and to be able to grow through them. And, and and so I feel like my faith looks very different than it used to. Some things I'm much less sure about than I used to be, which is a funny thing now, having a having a PhD in theology and being less sure about things than when you started. And yet other things I'm much more sure about. Um, and so so it's um it's been a, a process of of depth. Um, and I suppose it's the depth that's that's of most interest to me or most value. Um, so, yeah, that, that leads me, I guess, to, to wherever I am now, which is still on on the journey. Yeah. It's interesting, Ryan and I are sitting in the midst of a large church office and I think around large church offices and auditoriums and gatherings and that type of thing, we're happy to and potentially ready to acknowledge the different crises that people have in life, be it relational crisis, financial crisis, um, health crisis, and we would acknowledge that a certain percentage of our community at any given time is going through those, but it seems like maybe we don't acknowledge that certain percentage of our community are going to be having a faith crisis. I find that a bit interesting. It's almost as if maybe there's not a space for it, or maybe people don't know how to deal with that, and maybe they don't even know that they're having one. But uh, yeah, even the language of faith crisis is is almost a bit strange in some senses because it you know like we're talking about asking big questions and just the general things that you should do about something you care about but for us we go oh my gosh people are having a faith crisis like when it really it i, I don't know if it should be that big a deal uh, i mean what are what would you say are the the hallmarks or some of the things that would indicate that maybe you are I don't know. Is it is it just the questions that you're asking, or the, maybe the discontentment you're feeling? Um, how do you know mm. when you're in the middle of a, a quote unquote faith crisis? Yeah, I think you're right. I think um, the language of faith crisis depends on the context you're in, mm, um, true. as to whether you perceive that as a crisis or not. You know, whether other people see that as a crisis and whether you see it as a crisis for yourself. Uh, and depending on the context. Um, the crisis can hit at various points. You know, if you live in a very constricted or you're immersed in a very, very constricted space, then simply um, asking a, a, a very small question might be seen as faith crisis to people. Oh, no, they're having a faith crisis. Or you might think, oh, no, I'm having a faith crisis. If you're in a, in a broader, more open space, then crisis might not be the language that, that ends up getting used. But I, but I think it's it's helpful at least for for people to try and give some language to the experience that they have that that can be deeply un, unsettling and and in a sense what what faith well how we make sense of our lives in many respects is through story so um, I make sense of my own life through my story 
in terms of understanding the story that I've lived and the way I've interpreted that and made sense of that and how that leads me to who I am now, even just telling you a bit of my story before, that is a way of understanding myself and where I fit in the world and where I fit in the church and, and all of that. And then we, we are also immersed in these larger stories, whether they're the stories that society, you know, out the history of where we live um, and how we've told that story. And then the, our religious traditions are essentially offering us a, a story. Now, we might want to say it's more than that. You know, there's an experience or there's a relationship and so on. But, but a big part of it is that what faith does is, is offer us a story that helps give us a sense of meaning. Um, and that's because that's where we get our, our sense of meaning from. And so if you have a story um, of faith, whatever that might look like, and that might look like, okay, so this was the problem and then God came along and Jesus did this and that's fixed that and that means for me now that this has happened uh, and that I can do these things. You know, the, any, any kind of version of, of that story gives your life a sense of real meaning and grounding that gives you the confidence to go about living. I think about myself as a, as a younger man and I, kind of, I thought I knew for sure what the story was and so that gave me supreme confidence uh, to go around. And, you know, at primary school, I was handing gospel tracts out to my friends. Uh, so, you know, I was, I was pretty pumped up pretty early uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I carried that right through and, and to, even to, into my university years. You know, I, I kind of thought I had that story pretty locked down and that gave me a sense of I know what my life is about. I might have some struggles and some wrestles with identity or, you know, all the things we go through, but at least I kind of know where I fit. I know what life is about. I know um, ultimately what I'm here for, you know, that those big questions of meaning. So one of the things that happens for us when, I don't know, perhaps it's something in life that happens. So perhaps it's a particular experience that you didn't expect or anticipate. Or, or it's a question that comes along for some reason. Maybe you're sitting in a university lecture or you're having a conversation with someone and, um, and there is this um, sense that the story is, is challenged or disrupted. So the off-script moment. Exactly, mm. yes. Mm. And when that happens, um, I guess we respond in a bunch of different ways. Some, like I did when I was younger, is make that go away because it's – it's, un, it's, it's creating ripples in the water, so to speak, or it's, you know, it's, un, it's, it's taking the story off script. Um, but often if, those, if you can't do that uh, anymore or the life disruption has been too large for you to be able to easily do that, then, then the story starts to get um, disrupted. And because you're now you're like, hang on, I've got a couple of questions about that. And those questions can feel a little bit like a, a thread that you start to pull. And it's like, if I keep pulling that thread, what, what happens? And that can be a scary feeling. So you've got the scary feeling of what will be left if I keep pulling that thread. You've got the unsettling feeling of um, this story that has helped me to make sense of my life and give me a sense of meaning is no longer as solid as I thought it was. And what does that mean for me? You know, I think this is why the language of crisis can be helpful because those are the kind of questions that come up. Then what is my life even about? You know, what, what, what does this mean for me and my community, the place where I find a real sense of belonging and meaning and, and significance and the things, you know, that I believe my life has been about? Um, all of that can, can get stirred up and, and, and thrown to the – or brought to the surface, if you like. And that can be a really unsettling, uncomfortable experience and, and feeling to have. I suppose uh, yeah. it's one thing to have an internal wrestle or questions or things going on, but then when the rest of your life, for example, if you're 
deeply immersed in like a church community or family or volunteering or you're a part of this, that and the other thing and you start to tug on that thread. It's the whole, you know, the the house of cards or the, the house, the construct starts to become a bit shaky and I suppose that could potentially compound the questions. You know, it's one thing to have a question and to be relatively secure with that question but then to have one question start to shake the foundations of your life, I imagine that could be yeah. a pretty frightening thing. Yeah, and and like you say, a frightening thing and a difficult thing if you are um, participating in, you know, quite involved in, let's say, the expressions of your church or the the practices of your church or the, the life of your church community and you feel that you can't bring those things out or that they don't really belong there and yet they're going on inside, then you end up with this, am I a fraud, am I a fake, am I a phony, am I just doing this thing but nobody knows what I'm... So you end up with that kind of split that can happen. Um, and splits happen a lot for people with who are, who are really involved in church. Yeah. Uh, where they end up with that mm. part of that part of them that kind of does the thing, does the 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 church thing, and then the rest of them that's kind of boiling away under the surface mm. that's wrestling with other stuff. Mm. Maybe I'll live in faith crisis. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing I was interested to ask, Michael, is obviously there is um, – questions that we ask that are related to our fundamental kind of Christian belief and the scriptures and the story of Israel and Jesus and, and God redeeming humanity. But then we often also ask questions probably, I would say in my own experience and maybe even in yours, uh, a lot around our tradition and how that tells the story of Israel and God and, and Jesus and all of those things. Um now, so there's two separate kind of questions we're asking. One is maybe um, around, let's say, the scriptures themselves. You know, did Genesis really, was that a real account, the first 11 chapters or not? You did know, Jonah so really get swallowed by a the, giant fish? Yeah, exactly. There's, the, there's the, um, the questions of our faith itself, but then there's also mm-hmm. many questions we have of our tradition um, and the experience growing up within a tradition that tells a certain story. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are... You know, what are the risks in asking some of those questions? Um, you know, like are there questions that we can ask and we can't ask? Um, is it better to ask questions on one side than the other? Or, you know, it, can you speak into that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, sometimes those, that distinction between asking questions of our tradition and of the faith itself, sometimes we're unable to see the difference between those things, I think, especially if we've been immersed in a, I think if you've been within one particular tradition, perhaps for the whole of your Christian experience, then those two things can feel a little more synonymous. So you ask a question about whether Jonah really got swallowed by a fish and suddenly you're like, but then does even God exist? You know, um, you can, <laughs> if things can unravel very quickly if those things are all tied tightly together. Um, but yeah, look, I, I think there are, I don't, I don't think there's a bad question. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe, maybe there are some bad questions that are just sort of inappropriate. Um, but <laughs> Reese will have a few of those. But um, <laughs> but you know, I, I don't think our faith should be so delicate that we can't ask big questions and and that be okay. Now, that doesn't mean that's all we do. Uh, there's a lot more to the conversation than that. Um, but I think if we start to sort of draw off boundary lines and say those questions are off limits, 
um, then it's a little bit like, you know, the uh, the Lion King I was watching the other day because now I have a one-and-a-half-year-old and he doesn't watch much of it because I think most of it's too scary, but he loves the circle of life. Yeah, um, <laughs> so do I. <laughs> haven't, we haven't broached the theological issues at play in that song yet, mm. but... Um, uh, you know the, the 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 scene in the Lion King where it's like, don't go off to the well, I can't even remember what they're called, the Badlands or whatever they are, the, the the wastelands over there. You know, what's the first thing you're going to do if someone tells you, you know, that's the off limits part? Well, that means, oh right, so that's that's where the real secrets are, or that's where that's where you're really trying to pull the wool over my eyes. So if you, if you set kind of uh, areas that you say these are off limits for questions, then I think that's actually that's actually kind of a warning flag for people who are really wrestling with stuff because they're like, why, why, are we, why are we allowed to ask questions of all this stuff but, but not that? That's not to say there's not a wise way to engage in the questions and the conversation um, that help us navigate those. But I, but I do think we have to be um, open to be able to have those. And, and if we're honest, genuinely honest, then those big questions come along anyway. And so the risk if we don't allow ourselves to do that when they come up is that we do suppress them and then uh, what I've seen happen for some people is having suppressed them for a long time, they can no longer do so and then the entire faith, their entire faith explodes and, and, they, and everyone's like, how could they have suddenly gone from this to this? Um, but actually what's happened is there's been these questions that they felt they haven't been able to ask uh, or process, but they've been there anyway. And so I think we're better to say, I know it's a little bit scary, for some, to be able to say that's the question that I've got. But, um, but if the question's there, then all you're doing is being honest about that. And I feel like, I feel like honesty is a, is a thing that Christians should be interested in. I think um, when, it, when we think about honesty, um, Christianity has been generous, and perhaps my experience of Christianity, to locate myself, has been that honesty is like a virtue in terms of making sure you 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 don't lie when somebody asks you a question about where you've been um, or what you you know what you've been up to or whatever you know that's, yeah, what you got up to on Sunday kind of honesty yeah. but um, or Friday but night the, <laughs> but the other kind of honesty is um, is actually being honest enough to say this is really what I'm thinking about and this is what I'm struggling with or this is the questions that I've got. And I feel like that kind of honesty we we almost discourage often within churches, um, but I think that kind of honesty is just as important uh, as the other kind. So, I suppose you're yeah. always you, you when you find yourself in a situation like we're describing, you have to be honest with yourself as well in terms of what's at stake. Is it relationships that are at stake if you're asking these questions and you're in a particularly fundamental strain of faith tradition? Is it inclusion in like a church club? Is it, um, but then again, is it your mental health because you're becoming so like this internal wrestle you have is so intense that it's detrimental to your life? Is it your eternal destination that's at stake? It's these things that maybe we can't quite name, but are just bubbling away when you have this unsettling question or situation. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a level of shame that's sometimes associated with faith crisis. You know, you were talking about before about the other kinds of crises that you can hit. In, in your life and the fact that in your churches you've got people in relationship crises and, you know, home crises and all these other health crises. Faith is supposed to be the thing that helps all of those. You know, like for many people, faith is the thing that's the answer to all of those crises. So when faith itself is the crisis, then that's a, that feels um, even more disruptive perhaps that, that, and a little bit embarrassing if you're in a 
church tradition. So, um, and yeah, the, the question of, of what's at stake then can be um, reputation, especially if uh, you're in a community where people don't ask questions a lot, then suddenly you're that person asking the questions. You're, maybe you, you become a troublemaker because <laughs> you're just trying to name the questions you've got. Um, or it's just you know, your, your, your sense of belonging. Um, again, that's a little, what's at stake depends a little bit on the context you're in. So, yeah, that the more narrow the confines, um, the more that's often at stake um, quicker, mm. so to speak. It, it, um, seems, it seems to me that a community of faith uh, really should be the place in which those questions are welcome most. I mean, we did a conversation a while back around lament, and it's a similar thing in, in the sense of you being honest before God. But it seems like in some in certain faith traditions, that's not something we do because we don't want to really um, bring the the honest truth out, whether it's our own questions or to God, whatever that looks like. Why do you think we've, you know, I've had lots of conversations with with young adult, in particular guys who, for whatever reason, grow up thinking that the fact that they're asking questions means that there's something wrong with them. Um, you know, like what what's happened along the way. You know, that all of a sudden we find ourselves in a space where it almost seems like the church is the one place you can't ask questions as opposed to the place that, you know, th- your questions are welcome. This is the space to figure it out. Yeah, there's probably a lot of um, ways to answer <laughs> that question, I guess. Because um, there's a lot there's a lot going on mm. there. I think, um, I think the Christian tradition itself in its own trajectory – uh, so I think, you know, it starts off as this subversive underground movement um, that's kind of radically inclusive, actually, in, in terms of the way it embraced, you know, um, across ethnic cultural lines, um, the way it included women, um, slaves, you know, there's there's plenty of literature to, to, to demonstrate the kind of socially transformative um, way in which these communities were emerging. But they at best were tolerated by the Roman Empire and often were persecuted and killed and, and, and martyred. And there's a, there's a thing that kind of happens in the tradition when, when that story changes around the 4th century to the church becoming the empire. So Emperor Constantine who sort of converts... Um, technically he doesn't <laughs> yeah, convert till he's on his deathbed because he, he says, look, I've got a, a bunch of things I need to do as emperor um, that aren't good for a Christian to be doing, so I'll, I'll convert at the end. Um, but everybody else How should convenient. be a Christian. <laughs> um, there's just a bunch of people I've got to kill in the meantime. Uh, <laughs> but, so, so, you know, so the, so the empire um, shifts from being a pagan empire to being a Christian empire. And there's a very, you know, a, a quick shift, historically speaking, that, um, you know, in the first few hundred years, many Christians um, refused to be in the army, for example, because of their faith. But within a hundred years of Constantine, you had to be a Christian to get into the army. Um, so that's a that's a big swing around, right? That's a big shift. And with, within 150, 200 years, it was illegal in the Roman Empire to not be a Christian. So what that kind of does to Christianity is set it up as the thing that essentially commands your allegiance and belonging not as this underground subversive movement saying, hey, you've got to follow this Jesus um, in the face of the empire. Now it was, you've got to follow this Jesus or we'll execute you. 
Um, and that's a very different <laughs> kind of thing. Now, we don't do the same, generally speaking, not big into execution of, of, of unbelievers anymore. But I think the we're still dealing with the aftermath of that way of thinking about Christianity. And so um, church leaders often feel that they have to kind of control the conversation um, to keep the people because if they lose control, if they, you know, then then what might happen? And so, so rather than yes, let's create this open space for people to explore and discuss and wrestle with things. It's like I don't want, I, I need to kind of control this. Yeah, need um, people to have right belief for. Or, yeah, because yeah. right belief will mean you're in and 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 then we've kind of got it sorted and it's clear. Um, because lack of clarity is not very efficient. No. Uh, lack of clarity, you know, around who's in and who's out, or who belongs, or who doesn't, or who believes the right things and who doesn't. You know, well, that's that's um, that's messy and complicated and long-winded. And um, if if you want stability, you know, it's it's probably no surprise that the the church councils, for all the good theology they did, um, were really up and running once the empire was involved, because there was a clear association um, between for political leaders between having religious stability and having political and social stability. So if we have everybody believing the right things, then we minimize unrest. And I think probably it's tempting as a church leader to think in similar terms. We want everybody to believe the same thing to minimize unrest. Um, and, you know, pastors are busy. And so the idea that every young adult's going to come knocking on the door saying, I've got a few questions about what you said. Um, you know, that feels exhausting. No one wants that, and and you know we've got to get on with the business. Just so, refer to um, our yeah. There's lots statement of faith or yeah, belief yeah. or something, and yeah. there you go. Mm. Yes, yeah. I feel like uh, as well the easy way out often would maybe to take be to take a, a very much a cookie cutter approach to to people, mm. and I think um, I've probably been involved in even ministries growing up where I probably had that mindset is you know how do I just you know take culture and replicate it and not uh, not invite you to ask the right questions but mm. get you to say the right things um and and that seems very challenging i think simply because it's so much easier to do the cookie cutter thing right it's a lot quicker it's a lot more efficient just to have yeah. you say the right things as opposed to teach you to think mm. <laughs> and and to discover for yourself and mm. um, i mean i find myself in kind of our next generation area overseeing a lot of uh, our, our zero through to almost 30 age. And in, you know, I'm, I'm asking those questions for myself. How do we teach critical thinking? But it seems like a real struggle, not only in the church, but in the world where often we would rather tell people what to think or tell people what to say or tell people, you know, give me practical steps on how I can live as opposed to, Give me the tools to figure out how I should live. Mm. Um, yeah, it seems like that's a lot more difficult <laughs> than it should be. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think. Um, I th- again, I think it's easier, like you say. It, it's and everybody. If we take the kind of modern capitalist mindset, it, which I don't, I, I'm not describing as bad, it's just it just is right. It's kind of fastest way to fastest and cheapest way to best output, right? That's kind of the, you know, that, that's what, that's kind of the modern framework. Uh, and so, um, 
the the kind of cookie cutter approach you're talking about is is that it's the fastest cheapest and and not just from a financial perspective but you know cheapest on resources like if you're trying to kind of get this thing happening um and even if you see the whole point of faith ultimately is just getting you know getting souls across the line then you can kind of you can justify all, all, you know all of all of those um all of that kind of constriction for the ultimate kind of goal it's kind of means to an end in, in some respects um, we have to sacrifice a few questions along the way to ultimately get as many people through the door as possible. Um, the challenge with that is that it, I think it ends up being counterproductive because it you end up sometimes inoculating people against faith once yeah. they've done a yeah. once they've yeah. done a couple of years uh, or a few years of faith and then found that it didn't deal like very well with the questions that they had. Yeah. Then they actually are much more likely to reject it wholesale. Mm. Um, yeah, I feel like a case can be made for orderliness and kind of doing things appropriately mm. and. Uh, doing things well. But I think if we talk about almost indoctrinating people or rolling out a culture over multiple campuses, over mul- multiple things, I think if you start having these questions or these things pop up in your life, it's, it fails to pass the sniff test. you kind of just like, something smells. It's like when you walk past a subway. You can smell the bread cooking and you're like, it's kind of good and kind of not good. <laughs> Hang on, and then I, I and and to use another analogy that I kind of that often pops up in my mind is that it becomes a bit emperor's new closey. It's mm. you know it's like we're doing this thing, and the emperor is walking down the street and parade, and he's not wearing any clothes, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, it's great, but hang on, oh mate's not wearing any clothes. Do you, do you notice that? Oh, you don't notice that. Oh, oh okay. Or you might find someone who kind of picks up on it as well, and then you have your little enclave, which might be a bit precarious if you don't know where home bases or approach things from a way that is helpful to your mm. to your life. I have had experiences where you pick at something in church life and you and your mates get together and you just mock that and then you become a little pocket of cynicism sitting in the back row of your church, which is not helpful either. Like you, mm. I feel like I often wonder how do you approach the questions in a way that is going to be helpful rather than just throw a stick of dynamite at your faith, have it blow up, and then sift through the wreckage afterwards to see what might be salvaged. How can you do it in a way that's actually going to be helpful, you know, without just becoming a destructive thing? Yeah, I mean, I think about this all the time when I lecture students in theology, right? So they they come in their first year, first week, and I know that I could blow up their faith if I wanted to. Um, either I would blow up their faith or they would lose all faith in me as a, as a theology lecturer, one, one or the other, you know, very, very early on. And, but... Um, that's not actually particularly helpful. And so what I'm more interested in, and even coming back to the critical thinking thing, is, is helping them to to develop the tools and resources for them to go on the journey for themselves um, in tandem with conversation and obviously with content that they're receiving and all of that. Um, but, you know, I, I even remember back to when I studied science. I thought about this when I started teaching theology. Because when I did my first year of my science degree, they said, look, you were told all these things at school. It's not really the way it is. It's much more complicated than that. Here's how it is. And then they tell you that. And then you hit second year of science and they'd say, look, we know we told you that last year, <laughs> but actually it's a little bit different than that, you know. And then and that would happen each year. And, and then I hit kind of postgrad in, in science and they were like, we want you guys to do some presentations on the current research because actually all of these things are kind of a little bit up in the air. And, um, and I think, so I think any field of knowledge is a bit like that. Um, any field of knowledge is more complicated or more complex or more nuanced or more broad um, with more unknowns than you think it is when you first 
dip into it. And, and faith conversations are very much like that. Um, and so, yeah, the, the aim is not to just to drop a stick of dynamite in and say, none of you even read the Bible right. Um, you've got no idea what you're doing. The God you believe in doesn't even exist. God's totally different to that. You know, that's not how you start a conversation. So it's how do you actually help people go on the journey kind of a, a step at a time. And I think sometimes those those cynical groups of, of rebels down the back, um, perhaps those groups have become necessary if there's not room and space. You know, they become, and I mean necessary from, you know, you were talking about mental health before. Uh, often people do feel like they need an outlet for the stuff that's boiling away in them. And if they don't find that in a healthier way, then you, then you've got to, it's got to come out still somewhere and it often ends up, you know, coming out in those kind of less healthy spaces. Mm. I'd love to, uh, something that I feel like I've, I've noticed a little bit, and this is partially in my own journey, but even looking at the the journey of those around me is the, the balance of asking questions, but then having the energy to pioneer or, or do something different. You know, it's one thing to have the wrestle itself, but it's a lot easier for us just to repeat the patterns that we've done previously, whatever that looks like. So for example, um, maybe a context I've found myself in is youth ministry. And so a lot of people will have questions about, you know, how, how well is what we're doing working? Um, but in our minds, what we grew through was perfect. You know, I made it here. I'm fine. But then we look around and at, at all of our friends and go, yeah, but w- why is it that only myself and maybe one friend kind of got here? But yet we have those wrestles, but then we just want to repeat exactly what we had for the the coming generation. And it seems like the tendency for us is to just continue to repeat the pattern, even though we've got these underlying questions. Is, do you think, is that just like, not having the mental energy to actually think of a, a better possibility or, or maybe it's it's not on the table or um, why is it that we seem to just repeat and fall into the patterns when we seem to be a little bit discontent about maybe the patterns that we're following? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think it, it is easier <laughs> in, in one sense, like right? So it's, it's easier just to, to roll it out again. Um, it's the um, it's the classic kind of story of the of the intern who has a miserable, terrible experience, but but is the one intern who survives and makes it to become a pastor, and then um, and then does just the same to their interns um, and tries to make them as miserable as possible as well because of how miserable they had to be. Um, <laughs> I mean, hypothetically. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, so so there's that kind of um, there's that, and that's actually a normal human cycle is just to repeat a, a normal human trait is to repeat the cycle, even the, even the cycles we don't like. So we do that relationally, we do that in our family lives, right? Um, as we find ourselves reliving the cycle, that even if we had, even if we hated it, we find ourselves reliving it. Let alone if we just had a few questions about it. Um, so I think that's that's one thing is that we yeah we tend to if we especially you're, you're busy, life is hectic. There's not a lot of mental and emotional energy to to try and rethink things, and it, so it seems like it feels like a huge task if you've got to do it from the ground up. And if you feel like you're the only one having these conversations or the only one thinking about this stuff, then you feel really isolated, and you're like, "Well, how can I? How can I even kind of? How can I begin this from scratch with nothing?" Um, and so, again, perhaps that's a reason why bringing the conversations um, forward in church communities 
actually helps everybody because then we realize we're not stuck, isolated, alone, having to do it ourselves, by ourselves from scratch, but that actually there's resources being shared between people and among people and among communities in the same way that our other cycles, you know, and, and the cycles that, that or, the, or the systems or the, the processes that we feel are so concrete in many cases are very new. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things I, th- I thought, oh, that's just always the way Christians have done that. And then you, you look it up or you, you read about it and you realize, no, it's just 25 years of that um, <laughs> in, a, in a history of 2,000 years. Uh, it's actually ve- a very recent thing. And so yeah. we, we are able to innovate. Do you think it's okay to make concessions in terms of I am existing within a faith community and I have I find this to be problematic and this amount of stuff problematic and this amount of stuff to be okay and I'm just going to make the concession on that because I like to be amongst the people and this is this works for me this is comfortable for me you know like do you think it's okay to have that conversation with yourself and be okay with a certain level of I'm not okay with these two things, but these 10 things I'm okay with. I think you have, you have to be okay with concessions in community um, because if you're in a community where you're all thinking exactly – you know, what we tend to do, talking about repeating cycles, is to say what people in faith crisis tend to do. This church um, is trying to control what I'm thinking and tell me what to think. Uh, and it's trying to get us to all think the same. So I'm going to reject that and find a community where everyone thinks like me. Um, and, and, then, and then kind of kind of replicate, even if it's a different set of beliefs, but the same fundamental kind of problem. Uh, and if we just are doing that, replicate, you know, changing, exchanging one form of group think for another, which is often what we can be sort of, we can fall into doing, um, then I don't think that's, particularly helpful. So I think, I think there always have to be some level of concessions that you're making. Um, I guess the, the question does come, when, when, does, when do those things become untenable for me? Um, and you talk about mental health. If your mental health is disintegrating because you're in a space where you're getting triggered and trauma, and trauma is being relived all the time, then that's not a healthy space for you to be in. I, I think um, where I'm probably less likely to make concessions myself is is around how the community itself responds to um, difference or uh, to the questions. So if I'm in a community where lots of people think differently to me, which which I am, where people there's a wide range of perspectives on all sorts of things, but that everyone's kind of like that that's all right, um, and and I can live with that. Um, now if it still might be that the rubber hits the road on a particular issue and, and I feel that's a non-negotiable for me for, for whatever reason, then I have to work through that at the time. But I think what I have more concerns about is when the concession that you're making is about <laughs> the fact that I'm not able to be myself here. So if you're not actually able to be you, um, then that's, that's an unhealthy place to be. So if I'm like, oh, the concession I'm going to make um, is that I'm not going to be me. I'm going to pretend to be something else. Then that that's a concession I I, I feel is, is not a good one to have. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um I feel like this conversation has has actually beautifully encaptured the many, many 
previous conversations we've had and um, I guess I'm wondering what the alternate is and what the better possible future is. Like how do we actually have and facilitate as community communities of faith like more robust conversations and facilitate safe spaces for people to ask questions to know that it's actually okay. Um, I mean, that's probably a very long-winded answer as well, but mm. do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, like, is, it like a, is it like a matter of just saying every Wednesday night we're going to get together and we're going to like open, open it up to talk about this stuff? Mm. Or, you know, is it just a matter of being deliberate? Yeah, I think there's a few things you can do. And one of them is deliberately creating spaces for those kinds of conversations. Because not, you know, the hard thing you might find is, again, everyone in the church community is in a, different place. So some people want to come into a and do a church gathering and just be told, you know what, you're awesome. Give it another crack this week. You're great. You know, they they need they just need a bit of encouragement in their week. And that's what they're looking for. Other people are like, find that incredibly shallow and frustrating. And you know, so the the range of people you have in a community is very broad. Uh, and some some people the last thing they want to do when they come into church is be disrupted and and tipped upside down. And for other people that's the very thing they want. Um, so I think at the least it's creating it's creating some space for those conversations, you know, in the church that, that I'm involved in. We've sort of specifically created a space um, for theological conversations around a bunch of this kind of stuff. And one of the things I say all the time is, as the one who facilitates it, is especially when new people come in, is to say, this is a space to listen to each other and to hear each other. This is not this is not a heresy hunting ground. You're not here to um, to out anybody or to jump on them and smash them in the face with your Bible. Um, this is a place for us to be able to ask questions, to work through stuff. I'm going to offer some content, but then we're going to have discussion and dialogue and you're free to share your perspectives and your opinions. And I think those kind of spaces are important. People have found that a, a helpful place to process some of that stuff. So I, I think creating room is good. I, th- I wonder whether there is a lot of pressure some of it internal and some of it from the congregation on church leaders to feel like they need to have the answers to every question. Um, and so, and maybe this is the the kind of the curse of a certain kind of way of approaching preaching, for example, which is that I'm here to tell you the thing um, and I'm going to tell it to you. And then you're Here's the hat away, and I'm going to pull a rabbit thing. out of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, and so preaching is essentially about telling people what to think. Um, and, and I understand that sometimes that's, that's maybe what you're trying to do, but, um, often preachers and leaders in their various spaces, and you have to be mindful of where and when you do this, uh, might be able to, to hold the fact that there are some things they don't have good answers for right now. And if you're able to model that to people, and say, you know, as someone who's um, got a doctorate in theology, <laughs> people expect me to have the answers to every theological question that there is. And so they're like, you got a PhD in theology. Can I ask you a question about Ezekiel chapter 17, verse 11? Um, and I'm like, I haven't studied Ezekiel chapter 17. Um, <laughs> uh, or, or, you know, whatever. Like, so, so I have to be comfortable saying, not, not succumbing to that kind of pressure of I'm supposed to be the one with the answers, but to say, actually, I don't really know the answer to that question, but that's okay. And even things that I have thought about, there, there are things in me that are still in process. And to be able to say that's something I'm still sitting with and that's a healthy part of my faith journey, 
I think is good modeling for that's really people. it's honesty on both sides, right? That's really interesting. Yeah. So it's the honesty to ask the question, but it's also the honesty from the 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 teacher or the the person who has the answers to actually go. Oh, I don't know, so, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. I have I have a recollection of um, uh, hearing a recording of one of those spaces you're describing, and I really appreciated. Uh, I remember a person put out uh, a very interesting point of view on a certain topic that I was like, whoa, that is out of left field. That I, I don't know what to do with that. And I was expecting you as the moderator to come back and potentially realign them or have something to follow on from. And you just said, yeah, cool. Thanks for that perspective. And that was interesting to me in the moment. I was like almost shocked because not that I was expecting you to come back and rebut them, but I'm conditioned to a bit of the debate and what you what you demonstrated in the moment was practicing embracing mm. people and their journey and their points of view. And I hope this isn't a tangent, but in particularly in Australia, I find it an interesting half step between New Zealand and the Americanized form of kind of mm-hmm. Christianity. Whereas in New Zealand, people are kind of almost okay with a bit of stuff out of left field. In America, they're absolutely not okay with it. And in Australia, there's a, there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of back and forth. There's a little bit of a more of a liberal approach to things or, or an openness and there's a little bit of more of a closeness and it's an interesting place to be. I feel like mm. um, maybe there's some some stuff for us to work on as Christians, organized Christians in Australia to kind of um, to, to look into that. Because yeah. I definitely feel a pull when someone has something that they're wrestling with to kind of yeah. inform that rather than be like, hey, great question. I'm, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> and I feel like I, I feel that tension – almost every day, every week mm. um, of the – because r- right beliefs are important and there are some beliefs that are extremely important, but then how do you facilitate people to discover that for themselves? And I mm. think that's the real tricky challenge because I constantly find myself having to sit on my hands and especially when dealing with young people, right, like – because I would much rather go, no, no, that's not right. This is this is what you're meant to think or say. But there is an element of sometimes needing to guide that and to to help them. But ultimately, it's it's for people to discover for themselves. I mean, I don't know. Is mm. that is that the right approach? Should we, you know, like that's a quite a tension, right, between having the the right beliefs and there are some things that are really important, but then you know, not wanting to force them on people, but, you know, like how do you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, what we believe is profoundly important for our lives. Uh, The things that we believe shape the way we live, shape the way that we see ourselves and see one another. So, you know, the things that we believe do matter. And I think, you know, the, the, the other end of the spectrum from the kind of the fundamentalist narrow point of view is the nothing really matters. There is no kind of, it doesn't really matter what you believe. Um, And I'm, I'm not, wanting to go down because I think uh, what we believe matters deeply. Uh, one of the one of the images sometimes that people use is the idea of wells versus fences, right? And is is your are your beliefs and your faith, do you do you see them as um, if you think about, you know, some some livestock, nothing like a good farming metaphor from a, <laughs> someone who lives in the city and doesn't know anything <laughs> about farming. Um, but there's you know there's two ways to to keep them in a particular area. One is to build fences, or one is to stick the the well where they get their water from in in, in the middle, and they'll come to that because that's what they need for sustenance and for 
and 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 all of that. And I, and I wonder whether that's a helpful way of thinking about it. What are you what are you trying to do? And if you really do believe that the things you hold as dear in your faith are life giving, are sustaining, connect you to God and to each other in really profoundly meaningful ways, then don't be scared about creating openness because if, if that's really true, people will find nourishment and sustenance there and you can encourage them and guide them and engage them in that process. Um, if you don't really trust your faith all that well or what you believe really is nourishing and life-giving, then what you're much more likely to do is build fences to keep everybody in because you're terrified that they'll wander off if they actually find if they actually think too much about what you're offering. And so um, I find that a helpful kind of image even in terms of church community and what we're about. What we believe matters, but um, but let's not use those beliefs as sort of boundary markers to decide who belongs and who doesn't or who's in and who's out. Um, let's keep having those um, important conversations. I think, you know, I, I don't, in, in your reflection on that, um, uh, com- the recording you were, you were listening to of that conversation, Reese. Um, I think uh, sometimes some back and forth is helpful, right? Sometimes some debate uh, is good when it's done in a, in a, in a healthy way where you respect and are, and are kind to one another and generous to one another. And so there is a sort of a discerning of the moment. Is, the, is, this, is this the right time to, to, to do this or is this actually the right time to just be able to hear somebody? And, uh, and so there's no kind of answer to that question, I think, of what's the right approach. I think, I think there is an ongoing need to, to try and discern that with wisdom um, I think the main thing if we do want to go back to people in these conversations is that we don't do so from a kind of defensive, I've got to quickly shut this down and answer the question for them kind of thing. I think that's where we really run into problems. And if people experience you as, as somebody who they, they come to with a question and you say, oh, well, this is the answer to that question. Um, if, you, if you kind of shut them down or make them feel a bit silly for having their question or like if they don't agree with the answer to the question that you're about to give them, that then, then they don't really belong. You know, that's that's where you really cre- make it difficult for people to actually explore their faith. And and I think the thing for for people who are involved in kind of the ministry side of things is um, is that if people are asking questions, they care, and that's like a win, right? <laughs> um, because half the problem in church life is giving people to even like give a rip about anything in the present day. So if you've got people who are wanting to engage in conversation and have big questions, like that is a, a great sign that they're someone who cares about their faith and about their life and about their participation in church community. And that's got to be seen as like an overwhelmingly positive thing uh, to encourage and to help guide and engage rather than seeing that as a problem and someone to shut down or try and keep quiet. And so... The thing that to, to bear in mind that I find helpful is that, that my pursuit here is not to land somewhere where I can say, right, I used to believe this, then I went through a re-evaluation, but now I've got it all locked down again. Um, instead, to kind of see the faith as a, as a pilgrimage, right, as, as an ongoing journey. And so this kind of walk that we talk about or, you know, the way as they talked about in the New Testament was this kind of life lived in, in pursuit of God and meaning and life and relationship and love. Um, 
justice, you know, the big things of the human experience. And so if we're on that journey, that's, that's the thing. Um, it's not kind of locking down the 10 things we believe about that journey and then just, you know, whipping that out every time we, we uh, want to have a conversation. It's actually <laughs> finding ourselves immersed in that story and in that journey and allowing ourselves to keep asking questions of ourselves and of our faith and of God. I mean, Jesus was, was the ultimate, um, let me answer your question with another question kind yeah. of guy, right? Yeah. Uh, so very seldom... Did you find someone coming up to Jesus asking a question and him saying, oh, the answer to that question, yeah, no problem. Mm. Uh, it's this. Uh, that's just not the way Jesus engaged. He was interested in drawing people into mm, the journey, into the pilgrimage. Um, sometimes he, you know, he, he wasn't interested in closing the deal. He, wasn't, he didn't seem overly concerned about risk or about making sure they stay in. He would say something, completely discombobulate them and then wander off. And, <laughs> and what happened for them, a lot of times, they, that engenders a response of some kind, which is what I think, you want, mm. and then genders a curiosity. What you know? What is that? What what can I lean into here? What what now can I do in this conversation to to learn and to discover? Well, we hope you've enjoyed um, listening to the podcast today. Uh, we just wanted to open up the space essentially to encourage you. If you feel like you're actually um, in the midst of a faith crisis, or you have big, big questions that you're not really sure who you can talk to. We actually just wanted to encourage you to reach out to us mm. um, at podcast at riverviewchurch.com.au and to be honest, Reese and I are really the only ones that check the emails and so we'd encourage you to, to reach out to us and we'd love to have a conversation. We'd love to, to talk more about maybe some of the questions you might have. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're interested in hearing a little bit more from Michael Frost, you can find him at his podcast which is called In The Shift so if you go onto your little podcast platform anyone and put in In The Shift you should find him pretty much straight away it's a really good little podcast there's maybe 25-30 episodes mm. there covering all manner of topics so yeah I think you'll find that helpful prepare in his words to be discombobulated indeed and uh, of course as we always mention follow us on social media our handle is at Riverview Online and of course join us for our Sunday celebrations um, you can check out all the information on our socials. Our music today is by our friend Andrew Warong. Until next time, keep having conversations. Everybody in here that's on the verge of a breakthrough, give God a rain dance right now.